Right now, I want you, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to John chapter 3. I got the musicians playing musical chairs. I called them up, and now I tell them to go back down. So if we can mute all of these other mics at the moment, that might help in getting rid of the ring. Uh, but today I want to just share a message simply entitled, Jesus Loves You. Jesus Loves You. Now, a lot of people may understand and they may know that Jesus loves them. It might be that they recognize that, but there is also another part of that that I want to get to. Can everybody hear me all right, or is this... It's kind of a ringy thing. All right, fine. I will get rid of this. I, I tried. Uh, I'll be bound and fettered. I can't go too far. I, I don't go down the aisle, so you don't have to worry about anything. Uh, but I like to be hands-free. I'm a bit of a hands-free nut when it comes to that. But um, the Bible lets us know that Jesus loves us. The question is, how do we know that? Uh, how do we know how much he really loves, this, loves us? And what is it in the Scripture that tells us that he loves us? I mean, we hear people say that, and it's often, it has become, even within a ch the church, it's become a cliche, Jesus loves me. The little kids sing it. You learn a little song in Sunday school. If you went to church as a, as a child, you learned a little song, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. But what did Jesus do to let us know that he really, really loves us? What did he do? Well, I think we can all understand and we know that the Scripture reveals to us that Jesus came to this earth. He was born of a virgin. He grew to become a man and he embarked on a three-year ministry. And in that three-year ministry, he turned essentially the, the then-known world upside down, at least in the, in the nation of Israel, in the land of Palestine, throughout Judea and all the way through. He turned that part of the world upside down with his teachings, with his miracles, with all the things that he did and that he said everybody knew who Jesus was. In fact, even people who had physical ailments where they couldn't see, blind people, they knew who Jesus was. As soon as Jesus came into one particular village or one city one day, there was a, a man, a man who was blind, who was begging, and there he heard that Jesus was coming. And the Bible says he began to shout out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He knew who Jesus was. But how? Did they know he loved them? Was it because he fed the 5,000? He had compassion. The Bible says that at that time where, where the, he saw the people had stayed with him all day, they listened to him all day, they hadn't eaten anything, none of them had really planned to be out there all day, but he had taught all day long. And there in that moment he realizes these people need to eat or they're going to faint on the way home. You've got to feed them. And there he was able to multiply loaves of bread and fishes. Was it because of that that they felt that this man really, really loves me? 
I don't think so. Jesus said these words to his disciples. He said, no greater love has a man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friend. I realize that we have close friends in our lives and there are people in our lives that we consider to be very close to us. But I don't know how many of those friends who, when it all came down to it, would step in the line of a bullet for you. I don't know how many of them would step into your place when when you were to be punished for something and they would say, I'll take his place, I'll take her place. Friends would say, you know, I'll be there for I'll pray for you. You know, you gotta go, you gotta go to jail, I'll send you packages. You know, I I'm not gonna take it for you. You got yourself into this. The question that I really want to ask here today is this: not only how do we know that Jesus loves us, but who did he love? This is absolutely essential. This is so important because so many of us come from different backgrounds. You look around you today in our church, we have people from all different races, different nationalities, different places, different backgrounds. People grew up in different home settings, different, different schools, and, and went through different things in life. We all come from different places. But the important thing that we have to remember is that Jesus Christ loves you no matter where you came from, no matter what you look like, no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how bad you have been or you think you've been, you need to know that Jesus Christ loves you. And how do we know that? The Bible says this about him. It says, and they crucified him. Jesus stood up and he said, you know what? I just told my disciples not too long ago that there is no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. And guess what, fellas? I'm about to do that very thing for you. And it wasn't just his disciples, brothers and sisters, friends who are here today. It wasn't just his disciples that he he died for. It was for you. It was for me. It was so that we could have life. And the Bible says, have life to the full. Jesus died on the cross for you, not for you to stay in your sin. But he died on the cross to deliver you from your sin. Jesus loves, and this is where we are in John chapter 3. Jesus loves, first of all, the religious crowd. And I want to read just a little portion of John chapter 3. Starting at verse 1, the Bible says this. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. I'm going to stop right there and just note something about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was part of the ruling council of Jerusalem and all the land. There were 70 members of this council, only 70 out of all the people, and Nicodemus was one of them. He was an individual who the Bible lets us know was a Pharisee. He was one of those priestly men and one of those religious leaders in the nation. 
And here the Bible lets us know that he comes to Jesus and he comes to him under the cover of night because he knows who he is. He knows that the very group that he is a part of doesn't like Jesus. They hate him. In fact, they're trying to find ways to get rid of Jesus. But Nicodemus and a few others, a handful of others on this council recognize there is something different about Jesus. Jesus is just no ordinary prophet. He's just no ordinary man. There is no way that he could do the miracles that he has done if he were not sent from God. And so Nicodemus does the only thing that I believe anybody who puts their hope in religion ought to do. And that is they go to Jesus instead of going to church. There are a lot of people in church today and they are there doing their religious duty. And they're going to walk out the same as what they walked in. They're coming into the building. They expect nothing. They give nothing. And, and that is exactly what they're going to get out of it. You see, the religious crowd says, if I just go into church, I'm okay. I'm just curious how many of you, it's a little after 11 o'clock, how many of you are starting to feel a little rumbling in your stomach? I'm not trying to draw attention to it, but let's just say, how many of you, you start, all right, admit it, I am too. You're starting to feel just a little bit hungry. And I know what's up the street. Those golden arches are there. Now, when you feel hungry, you walk into McDonald's and you stare at the menu. It's amazing. After all these years, we still stare at the menu. We know everything that's on the menu. We still stand there for about five minutes. Not really sure what to order, but we look at it anyway. But you go into McDonald's, you're feeling hungry. You walk in and then you walk out without buying anything. And you say, oh man, that was good. Oh, that was great. That was just wonderful. I went to McDonald's, and I just feel so much better. No, you don't. You feel better when you've had that Big Mac. You feel better when those French fries are all gone, and you've slurped down every last bit of that Diet Coke. Right? Because we're all watching our waistline. It's like the Diet Coke canceled out the Big Mac and everything. Going into McDonald's didn't change your situation. The only thing that will change your situation is if you become a partaker. Is if you allow yourself to order from the menu and confront the menu and get that food in front of you and get it on the inside of you. Some people are the religious crowd or those who often come to church, but they stare at the menu. They stare at Jesus. They stare at the Bible, but do nothing with it. When the Bible says that he gave his life for you, they do nothing with that and they walk out absolutely the same, but somehow feeling that their conscience is just a little bit appeased. I went to church. I'm okay. The religious crowd says, if I do those things, I'm all right. If I give to charity every now and then, then God is going to be impressed with me. Listen, the Bible lets us know that that does not impress God. In fact, there is nothing that you can do that will ever earn your salvation. And I got to tell you, I'm glad of that because I don't know where you would start and I don't know where you'd stop. The religious crowd's all about the rules. Just keep the rules, and then hopefully God's going to be okay with you. 
No, it's not. It's not about the rules. It's not about all the regulations. The Bible says this, for we are saved by grace through faith. And it is a gift. And it's not by works. It's not by what you do. It's not by keeping all the rules. But it is by faith. And it is as we give ourselves to him and say, Lord, I trust that what you did on the cross for me, when you shed your blood on Calvary and you gave yourself, that that blood today cleanses all of my sin. And it wipes it all away. And because of that, I can have a new hope and a new life. Nicodemus came to Jesus, and I love the fact that Jesus didn't say, excuse me, what are you doing here? You're, you're kind of trying to get rid of me. He didn't say that to Nicodemus. He didn't push him away. He knew that the religious ruling council in Jerusalem was trying to, to stamp out his message. He knew that he, they were trying to get rid of him. He knew all of those things. He knew what was going on. And here Nicodemus comes at night, and he says, teacher, we know that we know there's something more to you. They didn't know what it was. He couldn't put his finger on it. He couldn't identify him at that moment and what it was about Jesus that was different from any other man other than, you know, I see these miraculous signs. Nobody else in Israel is doing all this now. I see some of the things that you're teaching. They, they, they confront our, our laws and our rules and our regulations and, and they cause us to begin to think about what it is that you're saying as opposed to what Moses has said in the law. So Lord, I, I'm not sure what to do with all of that. Listen to what Jesus said. The Bible says this in verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one. That's very important. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again or born from above. That indicates that there is, by faith, a spiritual transformation within the heart of an individual who will believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. It is a spiritual thing. Nicodemus doesn't quite get that. Listen to what he says. Verse 4, it's almost comical. How can a man be born when he is old? He said, Nicodemus asked, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Nicodemus doesn't get it. He's saying, wait a minute, I, this whole thing of being born, and Jesus is not talking about a physical birth. He is talking about a new spiritual birth. The Bible says that we are dead in trespasses and sins. That until we come alive, we come alive to Christ. We are dead in our sins. But when Jesus comes into our heart and our life and he brings about a transformation, we have life. We have been born again. And you know what? We're not born again to go back and do the very things we used to do. That's not being born again. Folks, being born again is, I give my life to Christ. I've got a new destiny now. I've got a new master now. His name is Jesus. I've got somebody who is for me and who is not against me, and he's going to help me to live a life that is pleasing, not according to the rules, but by faith. By faith. And so Jesus answered in verse 5. He said, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. 
This is something of the spirit that takes place. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised by, at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus still can't quite catch on to it. But down in verse 16, it's one of the most important verses in all of Scripture, and you need to see this. And this, it, this verse, I find it so interesting. We use this verse over and over and over again in the church. When we're out on the street and we're talking to somebody about Jesus, we pull out John 3.16. Do you know who John 3.16 was first spoken to? It was spoken to the religious crowd, the crowd who thinks that they have it okay just because every now and then they show up up in church and they say I'm fine I even read the Bible that's okay the devil knows scripture too it is we have got to encounter what Jesus Christ has done we've got to come to the place where we recognize we need a savior listen to what it says for God so loved a few sorry the world God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now here it is. Here's how simple it is. This, is, this was spoken to the religious man who has been about all the rules and, and been about doing all of those things and trying to earn favor with God. Jesus says that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, we don't quote it much. But it is equally important. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus said these words, and you say, well, you know, in our day and age of, of all different religions and, you know, political correctness and all kinds of things, this doesn't fly too well, but I'm not the one who said it. Jesus said it. He said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I didn't say it. Nobody else said it but Jesus. Jesus is the one who spoke those words, and he said, I am the way to get to God. You come through me, and when you do, you have the assurance of eternal hope and everlasting life, and the Bible says you will never perish. Physically, you will die, but spiritually, you live on for all of eternity, and the question is, where will you live? He has made every possible way for you to spend eternity with him. Jesus loves, he loves the religious crowd. I don't have time to go there, but there was a man by the name of Saul in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. Saul hated the church. He hated Christians so badly, he, he had letters in his hand to go to a city of Damascus and say, you know what, let me haul out every last living Christian in this place, and I will rid this city once and for all. Saul was on horseback. He was on his way to Damascus. And as he was on his way to Damascus to get rid of as many 
Christians as he could find and root out, all of a sudden there was a bright light that shone. And that bright light knocked him off his horse. And as he's laying on the ground, the light was so bright that it blinded his eyes. And there was a voice that came out of that light and it said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now remember the Bible says about Saul that he was a religious man. He also was a Pharisee. He knew the law. He knew how to be, according to the law, a a man who was good and right. But he hated the followers of Jesus. And now all of a sudden he's confronted with Jesus. He speaks to the light as he can't see and he says, who are you, Lord? And right then and there on that road to Damascus, Jesus showed up to Paul, to Saul, later became Paul, and said, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. You talk about meeting somebody in a dark alley. (laughs) He didn't meet him in a dark alley. He met him in broad daylight, and it was light like he had never seen before. I'm Jesus. You want to keep persecuting me? (laughs) Oh, no, I don't think so. And what do you want me to do, Lord? Immediately, he started getting his marching orders from Jesus right there on the road to Damascus. Let me tell you, the transformation can be instant. The transformation in your heart and in your life can be instant. It it can be immediate. But here was another religious man, and Jesus took time to come down and change Saul. And as a result of Saul's experience with Jesus, much of the New Testament was penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from the hand of this man, Saul. He loves the religious crowd. Who else does he love? He loves the sinful crowd. Turn over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I want to read you a little story about those who are not quite so religious. They don't claim to be. In fact, some of them probably don't even have a desire to be. They've, they've been put out and put off enough by the religious crew. They have no desire to be in church. They have no desire to come and to meet together. You say, Pastor, I can't believe you're talking about religion like this. Isn't this reli- We're not talking about religion today. I'm talking about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that will change your heart and change your eternal destiny. It is the only thing. But you need to know that it's not just the religious crowd that Jesus loves. As much as they hated him in the New Testament, he still took time to be with those who genuinely came after him and needed him and even on occasion knocked some off their horses so that they could come to terms with who Jesus really, really was. But what about the crew that's out there and doing whatever they want to do? John chapter 8 shows us a picture. Actually, shows us a couple of pictures, and it's, this passage is rich. Because one of the pictures it shows us is how cruel religion apart from Christ can be. How unbelievably, unbelievably brutal. It can be when it's done apart from Jesus. But it also shows us the compassion of Jesus for those who are down and out and those who are are cast aside by society. And listen to what the Bible says. The Bible says this, starting at verse 2 actually 
of, of John chapter 8. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, that is Jesus, where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. The Bible says caught in adultery. I don't know if you noticed that, but literally it indicates caught in the very act. Dragged out of her, her bed of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, uh, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is one of the greatest passages of hope in all the Scripture. I don't know what your past has been like. I know what mine's been like. I know where I came from. Some of you, you have come out of places. You can tell stories. You can tell, you've got a testimony that you can tell about how God rescued you and saved you. But there might be some here this morning. You haven't left your past yet. You're still hanging out in sin. You're hanging out in those places that you know it's draining your soul and it's, there's an emptiness on the inside of you that you, you just somehow can't seem to, to figure out what it is. Somebody once said that, that there is within the heart of every man a God-shaped vacuum. And that vacuum can only be filled by him. It can't be filled by things in the world, pleasures in the world, things that are out there that everybody says and society says, well, you know what, it's no big deal anymore. Who cares? You know, it's my body. I'll do with it what I want. I'll, I'll hang out where I want. I'll abuse it however I want. But I'm here to let you know that you were created in the image of God and you were created by him. You were created for him. You weren't created for you. So often, there are those that within sin, they just, as the deeper they go, the more selfish they become. Let me feed me, feed me, feed me, please me, please me. Let me, let me get what I want out of life. But here is this woman caught, the Bible says, in the very act of adultery. Let me show you the brutal nature of what it was that these religious leaders did. They dragged her to the temple courts. Jesus was in the temple courts, and if they were going to put her on trial according to the law of Moses, all they had to do was just go up the hill a little bit, and that is where they would have tried her in private. But look how brutal this is. 
They drag her out into public and they, they put her at the very feet of Jesus and they throw her down and say, this woman needs to die for her sin. What do you say? You see, they're now using this woman who has been sinful, caught in the act of adultery, they're now using her to somehow trap Jesus. Terrible, terrible, brutal nature of religion. But I want to tell you that in that moment, Jesus was ever so wise and Jesus was ever so compassionate. He began to tell this, this crowd. He wrote down and wrote in the dust. Nobody really knows what he wrote. There are so many, so many guesses. We have no idea what it was. I don't know if he sat there and wrote down the name of the person, the man who was involved that they forgot to bring to Jesus. I don't know. Almost every commentator I read Ask the very question, where's the guy? How come he wasn't dragged to Jesus? But nonetheless, Jesus wrote down and then speaks and says, let him who is without sin go ahead, throw the first stone. And all of a sudden, those who already had rocks in their hands to begin to throw at her, you begin to hear just a gentle thud next to their feet as they let those rocks fall. And the Bible says from the very oldest to the youngest they left, it's because the older people in life have had enough sense. They've learned along the way, you know, I'm not perfect, so I don't get to throw this rock. The young people still don't quite get it yet. It takes them a little while to digest what Jesus says, but they drop the rocks as well and they leave and now it's just this this woman who is living in sin standing in front of Jesus and here are some of the greatest words of hope in all of scripture neither do I condemn you go now Jesus says he doesn't say to her go now do whatever you want to do you've met me he says go and leave your life of sin how is that even possible how is it possible for us to beat sin in our lives? How is it possible for us to be able to get victory over it? I'm here to let you know you can try program after program. You can try place after place. And, and you can go to your friends. You can go to your neighbors. And you can go to your loved ones and say, I really need help. you got to help me. And they can do their best to help you. But I'm here to let you know that when Jesus Christ comes into your life, when you surrender, as we heard the word of the Lord before, when you surrender and give your all to him, in that moment, his power can change you instantly and give you a new hope and a new life. No longer do you have to stay in the mess that you can't seem to break free from, but instead he will break the chains that bind you. Hell, the by hell, somebody once said, has forged no chains that heaven cannot break. I don't care what the sin is. doesn't matter how deep it is. doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. You need to know that he can break you free. You can be absolutely free by his mighty power. There was a bedridden man who, the Bible says, was let down through a hole in the roof. He couldn't get out of his bed, and the Bible lets us know that they saw there was Jesus was in a house, and they couldn't get in through the door. Nobody would let him in. Here the man is, he's he stretched out on the bed, he can't get through. So the Bible says they broke the roof open. And there as they broke the roof open, these four men lets this one man down right in front of Jesus. You want to talk about determination and faith. These four guys working together. 
letting this one man down who can't help himself. He can't do anything to get out of his situation. There is absolutely nothing that he can do to get out of that bed and to break free. But they let him down in front of Jesus. And you know, the amazing thing is, is they brought him to Jesus for healing of his sick body. But listen to the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Not, son, get up from your bed and walk. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. In that moment, Jesus recognized that the greatest need in anybody's life is not for healing. It's not for some kind of physical ailment or thing that we are going through. The greatest need that mankind has is they need to come to know Christ as their Savior. They need forgiveness of sins. And right there, Jesus gave the forgiveness of sins to that man. And then all the religious crowd again got mad. What would you say that for? And Jesus said, well, what's it, what it, you know, is it easier for me to say, son, take up your bed and walk, or your sins are forgiven? He said, but I said this so that you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. You need to know that Jesus Christ is the only one who has the power to forgive sins. If you come to me and say, well, you know what, pastor, can you forgive me of my sins? No, I can't. No man on this earth has the power to forgive sins, only Jesus. Jesus will forgive you of your past, and you need to know that if you come to him and he says your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. In other words, God is not going to hold those sins against you. He wipes the slate clean. You start new, you start fresh, and today can be a day of new beginning for you. I want to finish with this. Jesus loves the backslidden crowd. This is a crowd who, you know, I used to go to church. I used to attend church. I even gave my heart to Jesus once. But, you know, I got caught up in some things, bad relationship. My job, it overtook me, and I just, you know, I don't go anymore. My Bible's got a half an inch of dust on it. I don't read the Bible. I don't pray. You were once there. You once came to an altar where you said, I'm going to give my heart to Jesus. I'm going to give my all to him. You know, there's somebody in the New Testament who sort of looks a little bit like that. You know, we have those experiences and we, we confess in that moment, I'm going to give my all to Jesus. I'm going to serve you, Jesus. His name was Peter. Peter was one of those guys who was, you know, he was the loudest of the crew. I don't know if he was the funnest. We don't really know that about Peter. But Peter was one of those guys who was just, he was always, you know, he was always saying something. And he didn't quite say the right things all the time. You know, we've all done that, right? Put the foot in the mouth, chew a little bit, spit it back out and realize what a fool we've been. Peter was one of those guys. Jesus was talking about the fact to his disciples, I've got to go to the cross. The Son of Man is going to be crucified. He's, he's going to go to the cross. Peter says, oh, no, Lord. Oh, no, not you. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. 
He didn't say it to Peter. He knew the devil was working through Peter in that moment. Get behind me, Satan. And then later on, a little later on, I've got to go to the cross. Oh, Jesus. You know what? I'll go to the cross with you. I'll die with you. I'll go to prison for you. I'll do all of those things. And not 24 hours later after confessing that, we see Peter warming around a little fire. And somebody coming up to him and looking at him and kind of standing there looking, looking, looking. Say, hey, I know you. I recognize you. You were with that guy Jesus, weren't you? Peter looks up, and I can feel in his heart his heart melting. You know, just liquid heart all through his body. Oh, not me. That wasn't me. Somebody else comes along. Says, hey, you're one of them. You're one of those Galileans. You're one of those disciples. You're, you were with Jesus. No, I wasn't. It wasn't me. You're mistaken. It's somebody else. I don't know the guy. Now, Peter's really, he's really getting frustrated. And it's an amazing thing. He's trying to get as close to Jesus as he possibly can without committing. And there are so many people like that. Trying to get as close to Jesus as they possibly can without actually having to surrender it all to him. Finally, one little lady comes up to him and says, hey, I know you. You were with Jesus. And the Bible says that he calls down cursings on himself, declaring that he didn't know Jesus. 24 hours earlier, this guy had just said, Jesus, I'll die for you. I'll go to prison for you. I'm your man, Jesus. And now he's cowering in a corner because of something three people said. He denied knowing Jesus. And you know what? Jesus told him he was going to do it. And he didn't remember it. There are those who come to church, they've given their hearts to Jesus, and then a little bit later on, they begin to deny that they know Jesus. Why? They can't take the heat. There are people who come along, and you know what? They got their attitudes about religion and about Jesus and about God, and you're like, I I don't want to have to deal with that. But let me tell you the difference that there is in what Jesus is able to do. The Bible lets us know in Mark chapter 16 and verse 7 that after Jesus rose from the dead, there were some angels there at the the tomb. And the angels said, listen, to the ladies that who had come and they had come to see if Jesus was there and and the, 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 the angels said to the ladies, I want you to go And I want you to tell his disciples that I've risen. Oh, and by the way, now think about this for a minute. Peter was the guy who denied knowing Jesus. And now the angel says his name, calls him by name, and says, by the way, go tell his disciples and Peter. In other words, I've got a personal message for Peter. Peter needs to know that I still love him. He let me down, but he needs to know that I still love him. He he walked away from me in my hour of need, but you need to know, and he needs to know that I still love him. And there are those who say, well, you know what? I used to go to church, and I used to serve the Lord, and I used to read my Bible, but you know what? I don't think God will do anything with me now. I don't think he really loves me anymore because I have just gone so far the other way. Can I tell you that is a lie from the pit of hell? 
that is not reality. It is not true. Jesus loves you no matter how far you have gone to do your own thing. He knows where you are and he knows how to rescue you and give you a new hope. David said these words in Psalm 139, if I make my bed in hell, he is there. Doesn't matter how low you go, doesn't matter how far you've gone, he still loves you. One final guy in the Bible that we read about and, you know, you learn it as a little child in Sunday school, his name is Jonah. We often call it Jonah and the whale. The Bible doesn't really call it a whale, calls it a big fish. But nonetheless, we know what happened. We know that God showed up and said, Jonah, I want you to deliver a message. And I want you to deliver a message to Nineveh. And, you know, Jonah wants to, to do what God wants him to do, but not at Nineveh. He doesn't, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is not on his list. You know, dear God, I don't know if he prayed this when he was in Bible college or not. Or not. Dear God, don't ever send me to Nineveh. But God, God sent him to Nineveh. He says, I, I got a message for Nineveh. You've got to deliver it, Jonah. You're my man. You're the guy to deliver it. Oh, Lord, anywhere else. But those Ninevites, there's something else. I don't think I can deliver it to them. I'm not your guy, Lord. You got to call somebody else. Go find somebody else in Israel. Aren't there other prophets? And the Bible says that Jonah began to run. And Jonah ran away from God. He ran away from where the call of God was. He, the call of God was to Nineveh. He went the opposite direction. He says, you know what, I'm going I'm to set sail for Tarshish. I don't know where that is, but Tarshish was the opposite direction. I'm going to go to Tarshish. Let me just get on a boat, and I'm going to go the other way. You see, Nineveh would have been a trek by land. Going by boat was not going to get him there. It was the other way. And he runs. And we know the story how Jonah, as he's on the run, the storm comes and the boat is tossed about. And, the, you know, the, 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 the guys who are on there, the deckhands and the captain and everybody, they're throwing stuff overboard. They say, we got to save the ship. we got to keep this thing afloat. Please get us out of here. There's got to be something going on. Jonah was down on the bottom of the boat asleep. They're all fearing for their lives, and here Jonah is in his lazy, lazy comfort zone of, ah, I'm getting away from what God wants me to do. Let me just nap a little. And finally, they come down and say, what's the matter with you? How can you sleep through this? And he realizes in that moment, this storm is for me. It's because of me, and it's for me. And he says, you know what, fellas, you've been throwing all this stuff overboard. I apologize if you just threw two days' supply of food overboard, but you got to throw me overboard. And they, they probably wished in that moment, I wished he had said that sooner. <laughs> you know, could have had more food. All of a sudden, they pick him up. He's gone into the water. And there, the Bible says, in the belly of that big fish, Jonah turns back to the Lord. And he says, Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, please, I will go to Nineveh. I will go and I will deliver the message that you want me to deliver. And you know what God does? God all of a sudden gives that big fish a case of indigestion. And there, whew, on the shore goes Jonah. And Jonah is finding the shortest way to Nineveh. Get me there and get me there now. 
And he goes to Nineveh and he does what God wants him to do. And I said all that simply to say this, that when Jonah was running, God didn't say, you know what, Jonah, I'm done with you. You've, you, you know what? You've gone too far, my friend. Jonah was headed the opposite direction. Jonah, you know what? You don't want to do what I, I want you to do? Then forget about it. Forget about you. But he goes after him. He runs after him. Listen, you might have gone to church a long time ago. You might have been in the place where you've given your heart to Jesus, and, but now you're away from him. You need to know that he still loves you, he's still after you, and he still has a plan for your life. He wants to use you for his glory. He wants to use you to bring other people to Christ. He loves you. Jesus loves you today. Jesus went to the cross to show how much he loves mankind. I'd like every head bowed, every eye closed.